Well, we do want to welcome our visitor back in the back. <laughs> Pastor Talbot, it's good to see you back. Hopefully you'll stick around. <laughs> well, before we get started, let's go to the Lord, our God, in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this moment, Father, as we look to your word. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to your truths, Lord, that you would Lord, make us sensitive to your word, to your spirit, Lord, that you would do a work in us today. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for Christ and his sacrificial work on our behalf to make all this possible in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, when I became a Christian in 93, I was 17 years old, senior in high school. My conversion was kind of overnight. And what I mean by that, it wasn't a situation where I had been going to church for a while and was reading the Bible and wrestling and debating and eventually caved in. Actually, all it took was just for a cute girl to ask me to come to church, and she told me there's going to be pizza afterwards. I was like, all right. <laughs> but to my surprise, I heard the gospel preached, fell under conviction of my sin, understood that salvation was only through Christ. And what he accomplished, I cried out to God to save me. A week later, I was baptized, and I became a very active member of the Southern Baptist Church up there in Northeast Alabama. So my life had completely flipped. And one of the good things about that experience was I, didn't, I wasn't bringing a lot of baggage with me into the church. I was basically a very zealous uh, sponge, ready to learn and soak in as much as I could. The sad part about it, though, is I was a sponge in a church that, theologically speaking, was really messed up. It's a typical Southern Baptist church, dispensational, semi-Pelagian. They, they were real big. You know, the rapture's going to happen in any moment. We were 99% sure it was going to happen in our lifetime. And so while the church was great about wanting to get people in, once they got you in, they didn't really know what to do with you. There was no full-orbed world-and-life view to disciple us then. There was no sense of planning for the future. It was just, hey, let's get as many people saved as we can. We're going to train you how to do it, which I did almost right away. And then that was it. We don't have much time left. Well, because of that bad theology, there was a question that floated around a lot in those days, not just by myself, but by pretty much all everybody I knew, my friends I knew, especially people my age who were finishing up their high school career and getting ready to move on with their lives. And that question was, what is God's will for my life? And nobody seemed to know the answer. It was a great mystery. Everybody was looking for it. I remember there being conferences and special Bible studies where we focused on the question, in fact, there was a book floating around. I don't know if you ever heard of it. There was a book called Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God. Very popular back then. And of course, now I look at that book and see how horrible it is in many places, sort of a soft mysticism. But even then, as a new Christian, there were some things in it that just didn't set well with me, left me confused. But you really... You, really couldn't question it because he wrote it in such a way that if you did, if you weren't experiencing God the way the author was, you were the problem. 
not his theology. So even with that book and with that workbook and, and studying that for weeks at the church, everyone I knew still wandered around confused and lost as to what God's will was. We were all looking for it, but we couldn't find it. Well, one day I had a bit of a breakthrough. I was hanging out at the Christian bookstore there in Anniston, and I was browsing the shelves. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. And my eyes landed on this little booklet by some guy named John MacArthur, who I don't think I knew who that was at the time. That's not what got my attention. What got my attention was the title. The title of the book was Found God's Will. And a little sigh of relief came over me. It's kind of like when you misplace your keys and you're trying to get to work. And you're about to tear your house up and down looking for your keys. And your wife or your son or daughter says, hey, found, found your keys. I'm like, thank you. That's kind of how I felt when I saw that title. I've been very anxious about finding out God's will for my life. I was confused. I was even getting a little depressed. On the one hand, I loved playing basketball. I felt like I was gifted in it. God gave me the height, obviously. I think I possibly could have went semi-pro. I got a full scholarship to play at a college there in Alabama. But then on the other hand, it wasn't making sense for me to play this game and spend all this time in class knowing that I was living in the last generation. You know, hell on earth is fixing to break out. Do I really want to be playing basketball? And so for someone to say, hey, found it, found God's will, I got a little excited. So I started reading the book there in the aisle. It's just a short little book, 60, 70 pages. I think I read most of it standing there in the aisle. Eventually bought it, took it home. And my purpose today is not to preach to you John MacArthur's book. In fact, I haven't even seen that book in over 20 years. Ironically, I lost it somewhere along the way. Maybe... Maybe Amanda will find in the garage, hey, found, found the book called Found. But I merely bring it up because that little book was a game changer for me. And the reason why is because MacArthur was making the case that the will of God is not some weird, mysterious, unknown thing. The will of God is not sought by looking for signs and waiting to hear the audible voice of God and so on. Instead, MacArthur made this simple point. If you want to know what the will of God is, open up your Bible. You know, it's kind of like the person who flips their glasses on their, on their head and, you know, going around, where's my glasses? Where are my glasses? And it's like, it's right here on your head. And you feel silly once you realize that. It's been there the whole time. And again, my point is not to preach this book, but in summary, MacArthur goes on to develop these five or six principles, which are all built around scriptures in which it is explicitly stated that this is the will of God for your life. Now, I don't remember all of the principles, but I remember most of them. One was to make sure that you're a believer. Obviously, there's no point in searching for God's will if you don't even believe God, you don't believe his word, you don't trust God. Another principle was to be filled with the Spirit. He gets this out of Ephesians 5 where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
He says in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And just a quick note, being filled with the Spirit here is not some weird charismatic thing, but it means to basically be consumed with Christ, be consumed with His Word, be consumed with knowing the Scriptures, to know God and to put that Word to use in your lives. Another principle was to be submissive to all those who've been placed in authority over you. This was based out of 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to, to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then another principle is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15 through 18. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to go do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then there was this principle found in the previous chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one tra transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. But are, you are you getting the picture here? God's will is not a mystery. God tells us over and over again what his will is. Now you may say, well, Jason, that, what about the specific details of life? I mean, that's what we really are interested in, right? Like, should I go to college or not? Or should I buy this car or that car? Should I date this person or that person? Well, MacArthur had a principle for that. He basically argued that if you're pursuing the things that God has clearly commanded in his word, you're a believer, you're pursuing sanctification, you're consumed with his word, knowing God and applying his word in all areas of your life, you pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, you're submissive to those in authority over you, so forth and so on, then God's, God is going to direct your desires. You're going to be able to look at specific situations and be better equipped at recognizing the pros and cons because you're consumed with his word and able to wisely apply it. Now, there's more that can be said about that, but the main point is this. God's will is not a mystery. It's not lost. It's been revealed. In fact, it's been right there under our noses this whole time. So much so that Paul would say in Ephesians that it would be foolish for you not to know it. Now, again, I have not read that little book in over 20 years. There may be some things here and there that I might critique. I don't even remember. But in the main, from what I can remember, I think MacArthur was pointing us in the right direction. Notice that in these passages where the will of God is specifically mentioned, we are commanded to do things that are nothing more than an application of God's moral law. Be submissive. That's the fifth commandment. Flee sexual immorality, control your body, that's the seventh commandment. Be a believer, that's the first commandment. Now, I don't remember how much of an emphasis that MacArthur placed on the Ten Commandments explicitly, but if you think about it, that's really where the will of God is summed up. In fact, our standards state this. 
After having seen what the scriptures principally teach us to believe concerning God, it follows to consider what they require as the duty of man. And then uh, question 91, what is the duty which God required of man? The duty which God required of man is obedience to his revealed will. And then what did God at first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? The rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the state of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. Well, what is the moral law? Question 93. The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and building, uh, binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. And it talks about what is the use of the moral law to man since the fall. Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness in life by the moral law, yet there is great use thereof as well common to all men as uh, peculiar either to the unregenerate or to the regenerate. And in our catechism, then explains to you what that use is to both the unregenerate and regenerate. What is its use to all men? Question 95, the moral laws of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. But what is the use of the law to the unregenerate man? Question 96. It is to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come, to drive them to Christ, and upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. And then what is the use of the law to the regenerate? Although they are regenerate and believe in Christ, be delivered from the moral law as the covenant of works, Notice it doesn't say we're delivered from the law. That'd be silly. We're not delivered from the will of God. But we're delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. So as thereby we are neither justified nor condemned by it. Yet besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as a rule of their obedience. And then lastly, question 98, where is this law summarily comprehended? The moral law summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, which were delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai and written by him in two tables of stone and are recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus. The first four commandments containing our duty to God and the other six, our duty to man. You know, it's mind boggling that so many of us were wandering around like lost, confused little puppies looking for something that was right under our nose the whole time. But we were blinded to it. 
by horrible theology and traditions of men. Plus, we're the fast food culture. We want it quick and easy. We don't want to have to slow down to study and to think. That's work. Well, we can be lazy at times. But beloved, the will of God has been revealed. And it's summarized right here in the Ten Commandments. And so as we move from here to consider these, each of these commandments in our introduction to systematic theology, understand that this isn't just some historical curiosity where we're looking at some old, outdated principles given to a people a long time ago that has no relevance for us today. No, beloved, this is the will of God for your life. And if you're serious about knowing and understanding God's will for your life, then you must be serious about knowing and understanding each of these commandments. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be wandering around, dazed and confused. You can be a master in the will of God. And our forefathers in the Reformed faith understood this a long time ago. And praise God, they gave us these helps in the confessions and catechism. Well, speaking of helping us, our forefathers even provided us with some basic rules to be understood in order for us to rightly understand the Ten Commandments. And it's to this I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. They express these rules in larger catechism question 99 wherein they state that, quote, for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. And then they list eight rules. And keep in mind, as we shall see, these are not just some arbitrary rules that a bunch of guys just sat around making up one day. These rules reflect what Scripture itself reveals to us concerning the moral law of God. And so what are they? Number one, Quote, that the law is perfect and bindeth every one to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. If we were to sum this rule up, it is this, the law of God is perfect, which is a direct quote of Psalm 19.7. Now, what does it mean for the law to be perfect? Well, Pastor JP actually spoke to that last Sunday, some, so I won't belabor it here today. But in short, it means that the law of God is complete. It's without blemish. It's without defect. It is flawless. And therefore, it is a sufficient guide which can neither mislead you or fail you. Psalm 1830 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God's law is complete. It is perfect. It proves true. It will never lead you astray. And furthermore, because of its perfections, all are bound to it. It must conform to it in the whole man. That is the entirety of his being. It demands of us perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now you may say, well, Jay, I can't keep the law perfectly. Entirely and exact. You're absolutely right. That's one of the purposes of the law. As we just read in question number 95. It is to humble us in the sense of our sin and misery and thereby help us to a clearer sight of the need that we have of Christ and of his perfection and his obedience. The law leads us to Christ. But it doesn't stop there as many would suppose. A lot of people understand that point, but then they just stop. They just cut it off. It doesn't lead us to Christ only for Christ to then turn around and say to us, okay, now that I've saved you from the curse of the law, you're free to do whatever you want. Never mind the will of God. How absurd is that? Christ, as we just heard in Matthew 5, takes that man or takes that woman whom he has redeemed, takes them back to the law so that we would know how we are to live our lives in a way that pleases and honors our Savior. Rule two, quote, that it is spiritual and so reaches the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures, end quote. If we were to sum this up, we could say the second rule is, is that the law of God is spiritual. Again, this is a direct quote, and this one from Romans 7, 14, where Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Notice the contrast Paul makes here. The law is spiritual, that it is, it is produced by the Holy Spirit. Whereas Paul, as a fallen man, is of the flesh sold under sin. Beloved, there is a very dangerous and erroneous idea by many that the Ten Commandments were only concerned with a very limited external issues. According to these people, the Sixth Commandment, just to give one example, did not originally deal with questions of the heart. It did not originally deal with issues of unjust anger, bitterness, and so on. You'll hear people argue, for example, that in Matthew 5, Jesus is either annulling the Ten Commandments and replacing them with his own, in which he deals more so now with the inner man and his thoughts than with the mere external. Or you hear some people argue that Jesus is adding this spiritual dimension to the original law. They'll say, well, when Jesus says, for example, you have heard that it was said of those of old that you should not murder and whoever murders was liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. These people say, ah, see, the sixth commandment was not enough. Jesus is now concerned with the heart. He's now concerned with our thoughts. But beloved, this is false. In Matthew 5, Jesus is addressing the wrong interpretations of the law that they had heard. And he's correcting their false understanding of that law. The moral law of God has always been concerned with this inner spiritual dimension. And so to act as though the sixth commandment went, went no further than prohibiting the external physical taking of life is to not only misunderstand the law and its original intent, 
which is what Jesus was preserving in Matthew 5, but it is to actually side with those who are in error in his audience and the misunderstanding that they had of the law. The irony here is that many of these people had the same faulty understanding of the law that we hear from dispensationalists and New Covenant theologians. And here Jesus was correcting them on that. Jesus was not annulling the moral law of God and replacing it. Jesus, in fact, was making clear that even unjust anger in your heart is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. John Calvin notes the foolishness of such superficial understanding of the law. He says, we are not introducing a new interpretation of our own. We are following Christ, the best interpreter of the law. And he references Matthew 5. The Pharisees have instilled into the people the erroneous idea that the law was fulfilled by everyone who did not, in an external act, do anything against the law. He pronounces this a most dangerous delusion and declares that an immodest look is adultery and that hatred of a brother is murder. Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever by whispering or murmuring gives indication of being offended shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever by reproaches and evil speaking gives way to open anger shall be in danger of hellfire. Those who have not perceived this have pretended that Christ was only a second Moses, the giver of an evangelical to supply the deficiency of the Mosaic law. Hence the common axiom as to the perfection of the evangelical law and its great superiority to that of Moses. This idea is in many ways most pernicious, for it will appear from Moses himself when we come to give a summary of his precepts that great indignity is thus done to divine law. It certainly insinuates that the holiness of the fathers under the law was little else than hypocrisy and leads us away from that one and varying rule of righteousness. It is very easy, however, to confute this error which proceeds on the supposition that Christ added to the law, whereas he only restored it to its integrity by maintaining and purifying it when obscured by the falsehood and defiled by the leaven of the Pharisees, end quote. What an excellent quote, much needed for our church today. Beloved, the moral law of God was always concerned with the entirety of a person's life. It's always concerned with his intelligence, his character, his body, his soul, his public life, and his private life. God's law had always governed the understanding, the will, the desires, and all other powers of the soul. It has always been concerned with every thought, word, action, gesture, and relationship. Beloved, you will do yourself a dangerous misservice by believing this nonsense that the will of God as expressed in the Ten Commandments only deals with the external and not with the heart. By going that route, you will fail to understand the depths of your depravity and in turn fail to understand your great need of Christ. And you will produce nothing more than those spoken of by Paul in 1 Timothy 3, Notice how he describes these people. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their uh, parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Rule three says, quote, that one and the same thing in divers' respects is required or forbidden in several commandments, end quote. We could sum this all up. We could say the law of God is one. One in its purpose, one in its authority. It means that all of God's commandments ultimately serve the same purpose and the same goal. And that goal is that we are to flee idolatry and are to love and worship God in order that he be glorified. Again, this is not just some random rule that some person created out of thin air. You actually find this principle in Scripture. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Warcraft writes, when the first commandment calls us to have no other gods before the Lord, it is requiring us to love God, to desire, worship, and serve him more intensely than anything or anyone else. In obeying this first commandment, then we will obey the rest of the commandments. No area of life, no person, no thing, no endeavor, no commitment may come before this first commandment. End quote. And so we see there is unity in God's law. It is one in purpose in design. We can't just randomly choose out of the law what we like and don't like without destroying it all. Rule number four, quote, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. We could sum this up by saying that the law has two sides to it. But where do we find this principle in Scripture? Well, we find it, for example, in Ephesians 4, 28. Notice what Paul says here. Let the thief no longer steal. Right? Thou shalt not steal. But he doesn't stop there. What's this thief to do besides not stealing? But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We find another example of this principle in Matthew 15. Here the Pharisees had accused the disciples of Jesus of being unclean outwardly. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus responds, verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. In other words, your parents are not honored simply because you don't curse them. If you fail to care for them in sickness and as they get older, you're dishonoring them. And these Pharisees failed to understand the fullness of God's law. They failed to see where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. Also, as our standards point out, where promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included, and where threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. You see a clear example of this with Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, given this principle, as we just stated, what would you expect to happen if you dishonor your father and your mother? What would be the opposite of that your days may be long in the land? Well, short days and death, ultimately, right? Well, listen to Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. See the opposite? Another example, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What is the opposite of being guilty and punished? Being obedient and as a result being awarded, blessed. Listen to Psalm 24. Same commandment, but it presents the opposite of what happens. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Rule number five. Quote, that what God forbids... It is, an, it is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty, and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. We could summarize this rule by stating that the law of God is always applicable to our lives. This is an especially important rule for us today to remember. We're often told by culture that morality changes over time and or we are told that right or wrong depend on the situation, situational ethics. And here this principle refutes both of those claims. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here, Jesus points us to the reality that the law of God is always relevant and applicable. Morality does not change with the passing of time. And it does not change because God does not change. His purpose does not change. There has only ever been one steady, rock-firm plan that he is accomplishing. And this, in contrast to fallen sinful man who will often lie to you, working in secret with hidden agendas. That is often what is at play with all this talk about situational ethics and outdated morality. 
Beloved, as a good rule of thumb, when someone all of a sudden changes their tune and starts to whine about how outdated the rules are, you better believe there's something else going on that they're not telling you about. I found it to be true over and over again. I was just thinking about this just yesterday. Our president and vice president, when they were running for office, if you remember, they voiced a lot of concerns and distrust in Trump and in the vaccines and told us there wouldn't be any mandates. Now, we not only have a mandate, but the unvaccinated are essentially bioterrorists. They're killers. So you were once on the right side to be cautious, to express doubt. Now you're a killer. What changed? Well, we did our research. Baloney. We had enough time for that. What's at play here is hidden agendas, lies. But praise God, we have a solid rock on which to build. One law, one purpose, one goal. Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Beloved, it's the undiscerning, it's the fool, it's the rash. It is they who spurn the law of God and have decided for themselves what is right and what is wrong but their end is death and destruction. Rule number six, quote, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto, end quote. Here we can say that the law of God is all-inclusive. Warcraft explains, under a particular sin, forbidden, or a duty commanded, all causes, means, occasions, appearances, and provocations are included. In other words, a sin, such as breaking of the seventh commandment, involves not only the overt breaking of the command in physical adultery or fornication, it also involves anything leading up to the sin, such as unrestrained lust, the reading of pornography, the development of entangling alliances with moral and moral people. Furthermore, it involves anything resulting from the overt sin, such as lying, desertion, and divorce. This is the reason for the exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to abstain from all appearances of evil. And then Matthew Henry wrote, Corrupt affections indulged in the heart and evil practices allowed of in the life will greatly tend to promote fatal errors in the mind, whereas purity of heart and integrity of life will dispose men to receive the truth and the love of it. We should therefore abstain from evil and all appearances of evil, from sin and that which looks like sin leads to it and borders upon it. He who is not shy of the appearances of sin 
who shuns not the occasions of sin and who avoids not the temptations and approaches to sin will not long abstain from the actual commission of sin, unquote. You know, speaking of vaccines, you know, it's interesting when it comes to flus and viruses, we will be extra cautious to keep from getting sick. We'll shower more, we'll wash our hands more, we'll wear masks, we'll wear gloves, we'll clean, we'll clean more and more thoroughly. We seem to understand this principle when it comes to physical illness. But what about with sin, beloved? Why are we so careless? Why are we willing to play around with it a little bit and not take extra precautions? And rule seven, quote, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places, unquote. Here we may summarize it by saying that the law of God obligates us to establish it as a standard for others. I think, again, this is a very important uh, point. You may not realize it, but we actually recite this principle every week. Specifically think about what is said in the fourth commandment. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work. You shall not do any work. But it doesn't stop with you. It goes on, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So much for radical two-kingdom theology, huh? <laughs> so much for arguing, well, this is how I choose to live, but I don't expect anyone else to live this way. Beloved, God expects us to not only establish his law in our own lives, but also in the lives of others, in our families, and even those sojourners who are within our gates. And what I find really interesting here is one of the proof texts that the divines use for this rule. It's Leviticus 19, verse 17. There it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Reason with your neighbor. Your translation may say reprove him, rebuke him. As one commentator notes, instead of cherishing latent feelings of malice or meditating purposes of revenge against the person who has committed an insult or injury against them, God's people were taught to remonstrate with the offender and endeavor by calm and kindly reason to bring him to a sense of his fault. But notice what it goes on to say there in verse 18, Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, well, well. <laughs> How many times have you heard people argue, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to love God. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. That's what God told me to do but it isn't my job to establish any of these rules for anybody else. And yet the very command to love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus taught us, is a direct quote from Leviticus 19, 18. 
And in that context, to love your neighbor is to reason with your neighbor, that is to reprove and correct them according to the law when they have committed injury or insult against you. Instead of cherishing feelings of malice and or plotting revenge against them. John Gill writes, although no hatred may be expressed either by words or deeds, yet being in the heart is a breach of the sixth command, see Matthew 5.21. And of this, a man may be guilty when he does not attempt to save the life of his neighbor, either by bearing a testimony for him or by delivering from danger as preserving him from drowning from wild beasts and thieves, as in Leviticus 19.16, or when he does not reprove him for sin, as in the next clause, but suffers him to go on in it to his ruin, either of which, by interpretation, is a hatred of him. In other words, you want to know how to hate your neighbor? You want to know how to hate your family? Then live in your little tiny bubble and withhold the law of God from people. That's hatred. And then lastly, rule eight, quote, that in what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden them. So here in this last rule, we see that the law of God obligates us to help others and to separate from evil. We are to help others to properly apply God's law. And as we do so, we are to exercise caution that we, not, that we do not participate in the evil actions of others. Paul writes, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. And then in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers or partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And then this will lead Paul to go on to say, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will is of the Lord is. And that brings me full circle now to where we began. Beloved, these Ten Commandments summarize the moral law of God, which in turn is the will of God for your life. And so in the following weeks, as we study each of these commandments, don't just see this as just another historical curiosity which has no relevance for you today. It has all the relevance in the world for you today. And you will dismiss this will of God to your own destruction. And so I'll leave you with these considerations. One, look on these commandments as God's word. 
Receive it as though you yourself heard God speak at Sinai. And tremble as the people did then and be more affected by holy fear whenever you read, hear, or meditate on it. Two, pray to understand these commandments. Keep these eight rules always in mind and pray as King David did in Psalm 119, 18, where he said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Three, make it a goal to not only understand this will of God rightly, but to put it to work. For practicing these things is the goal of knowing them. Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 2, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Fourth, examine yourself by these commandments. James 1, verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This will of God is intended, beloved, for you to peer into, to understand and to examine your life, to test yourself, to examine how you come short in various ways and to realize what kind of person you are. And then fifth, be convicted by this will and repent. Follow these convictions by repentance until they force you to flee to Christ. And then six, consume yourself in the word in order to better understand the fullness of his will and use our standards to help you out with that. Beloved, his will for your life is not a mystery. It's not hidden. It's not lost. It's right under your nose. And may we become a people who are experts in rightly understanding and applying that will to our lives. Let us pray.